You're listening to a DM podcast. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, ad man and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Sarah Grimberg is a highly experienced media executive who has produced some of the best-known and most-loved shows in Australia, including the Hamish and Andy podcast and a number of top-rated radio programmes. She's also the host of her own chart-topping show, A Life of Greatness, where she interviews global figures as diverse as Gina Davis, Wim Hof and Matthew McConaughey in a bid to extract practices and strategies to help her listeners unlock their best selves. So, Sarah Grinberg, welcome to Five of My Life. Thank you. Before we get into uh, your choices, I just have to say congratulations on your podcast. Oh, thank you so much. It's greatly appreciated, Nigel. Well, listen, the last time I looked, you were number one, and you've been number one for ages. You've got an incredible list of guests. I mean, these are global icons. How do you get them? Well, I think what was really good was I always... You know, firstly, I started off and I was aligned to some of the guests. So I was able to get them on the podcast four years ago. And then after that, I think the quality of the podcast is really good. The numbers were good. So then it became very enticing for people from overseas and from here to want to come on the podcast. So now it works really well for both of us where I obviously want the great guest. They want a lot of promotion. So it's a beautiful intertwining of the two of us together. So now it's it's quite easy to get good guests. Well, well, it is a wonderful show. And I have a story for you where I was talking to an industry expert a few years ago because I'm extremely passionate about the five of my life and the format. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm lucky if I get 25,000 people, you get half a million or whatever you get or a million. I have no idea, but it's lots. And I was chatting to this industry expert who was being nice about five of my life, but said to me his one takeout was, you need to be more like Sarah Grinberg. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Carrey has uh, this, this wonderful uh, phrase where where someone uh, who is more successful than you, you you have a choice between resentment and admiration. And, and I'm in the admiration box. I, I I really like what you do, but it's brilliant. Be more like Sarah, Nigel. You go. <laughs> oh, I think that's very sweet, and I um, think that you're very good at what you do as well. So you know, you keep being you, Nigel. <laughs> well, listen, th- th- there's actually something there. I mean, gosh, I, I could, I, I'm so nice to talk to you. I think we approach things from, from two different ends of the same telescope. I, I think what we're both trying to do is, is uh, please inquisitive thinkers. Well, what I'm trying to do is, you know, help raise consciousness and allow people to live their greatest life and give them the tools and the tips on how to do that so that they can be better people 
shooting for the stars. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm slightly more modest. I'm trying to make half an hour less boring. So there you go. We'll see how see how we work as a couple. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we start on Five of My Life always with the film. And you have chosen the 1939 adaptation of the 1900 uh, children's book, uh, The Wizard of Oz. Uh, According to the US uh, uh, Library of Congress, it's the most watched film in history. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. I can't believe it was made in 1939 either. So I first watched The Wizard of Oz when I was four years old. And I loved it because obviously for anyone that watches it, it's a very entertaining film. And then when I became older, I learned the meaning behind the film, which wasn't just, you know, the razzle-dazzle of the costumes and the fact that it had an interesting storyline and all that kind of stuff. It was the fact that there was this one key phrase about The Wizard of Oz that just kind of summed up what I always say to my kids and what I believe I want everyone to know in life is that everything you need is always inside of you. And that was what happened with the Tin Man and with Scarecrow and with Dorothy and with the lion that they all wanted these different things like the lion wanted courage and the Scarecrow wanted brains, the Tin Man wanted a heart. But everything they had, they already, everything they wanted, they already had inside of them. And the same with Dorothy. And they realised that right at the end, even though they spent all this time searching for it. So I think that's one of the most beautiful messages that I try to share in life with people always and through the podcast, that we can give you the tools to do what you need, but always realize that what you what you have is there inside of you. You just need to know how to use it. And I think that is so unbelievably beautiful. So that is one reason why I love the movie. But the second reason is because at that age of four, when I first watched The Wizard of Oz, That's what sparked my interest in entertainment and in film and in that whole kind of world of Hollywood. And if it wasn't for that, I don't think I would be here where I am now. So when I watched that at age four, all I wanted to do after that was be an actress. And so I spent many years studying drama and acting in plays at school. And, you know, I got an agent and then I did TV commercials when I was older and You know, I studied theatre studies when I was in year 12 and then I went on in uni to do a lot of film and drama and all this kind of stuff. And I always knew that I wanted to do something that was in the entertainment industry. And I always, I didn't know exactly what, like I did think it was acting. But then as the time passed, I, you know, became very interested in people's stories and the art of storytelling and how, the, how stories can change people's lives. Once they hear them, they can relate to them. And really, it was that movie that sparked everything for me. And I, I don't think I would be here talking with you today had I had ever not watched The Wizard of Oz. That, that's an amazing story. Do you know you share that with Salman Rushdie? Have you heard that story? Salman no. Rushdie, it, it, literally, it is your story. I mean, he was 10, not 4, but he watched The Wizard of Oz and goes, that's it, I want to be a writer. Really? Uh, he sat down, he read a short story called Over the Rainbow. I mean, it was crap because he was, you know, 10. But, but and, and from then on, 
So, wow, talking about a, a five of my life choice changing lives, that is absolutely amazing. Yeah. But it's quite scary for a four-year-old. I mean, the Wicked Witch wasn't messing around. I mean, in, were you not a little bit traumatised? No, I was absolutely terrified by that that <laughs> Wicked Witch. She was the scariest, I swear I had nightmares, with the green face and all of that. That's it, yeah. Terrifying. So take that part, you know, to the side. Um, I was very scared of that. But the actual story which I told you, as I discovered when I was older, you know, it was so symbolic. I mean, the fact that what I love is that someone, you know, in 1939 even thought about that. And and most people that watch The Wizard of Oz have no idea that the, those are the undercurrent messages. But isn't that great with, with I mean, the risk of being pretentious here, with, with great art, is it can have a brilliant effect on you and you not even realise it. I mean, you realised yeah. it, but lots of people will have watched that film and they actually are inspired and motivated and more self-reliant, but they but they don't put it in that literal language. They just It's just a feeling. They just feel, yes. you, you know, gosh, the bloke found his courage and the lion found his courage and the tin man found his heart. But th- there's so many questions I want to ask you from that film. So one of them, <laughs> talking about children, is the Mike Tyson quote, which is, everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face. Is <laughs> living your best life, life of greatness, blah, 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 and then bosh, two kids. Sometimes when I see people who, you know, they're into the green smoothie and the yoga and the meditating and then they have twins and you go, yeah, I'm in my jimmy jams and it's 3.30 in the afternoon and could you all fuck off because I, you know, want some sleep. How, how did you find the, uh, the process of motherhood and child rearing interrupted or not your, your, your life's journey, your own life's journey? Well, it's interesting because I really, I mean, I got into self-development work big time after I had kids. Right. So okay. it wasn't until quite a few years after that. But obviously it was always inside of me. And we'll go into that in some of the other things I've chosen for the five of my life. But, you know, having kids, you know, gives you a new perspective on everything. And I think I'm always, I always reflect on the fact that I'm so happy that kind of my career took off and I started doing everything that I did. I mean... Probably it happened when my youngest was about, I think she was four, four or five. So already, you know, my kids are pretty easy and I, I, you know, have a lot of fantastic family that help out. So by the time that, you know, my career really kind of started to take off, they were far easier to manage. And I felt, I feel even now that hopefully from what I have learned and what I teach that I can encourage them to live their greatest life but it is hard at times I mean god I was having this conversation with my daughter the other day and I think it flew over her head what I was trying to talk about but we can only try <laughs> well the second question is it's interesting but the the juxtaposition between sort of real life and and advice and and careers and all those things there's a wonderfully uh, sort of politically incorrect quote in in the film, which it, was, it wasn't meant nastily, but it jarred slightly when I watched it a couple of days ago, where it's only bad witches are ugly. <laughs> <laughs> where Dorothy, she's, the house has squashed the, the witch of the East. And, and anyway, and, but, and, and, and she's going, oh, you a bad witch. And go, well, of course not, because I'm pretty. And it, but it made me want to ask you, is do you feel a, a pressure? And if you do, is it a burden or just part of the job where you have got to hold up a, a certain appearance of your life to be able to give advice or, or you're very happy that, that you can separate those two things? That's a really good question and one I think about a lot. And I saw someone post something on social media the other day about like, you know, I think it was on Instagram or something, it was a story and she was saying that she doesn't do social media properly 
she doesn't like making reels and all this kind of stuff. And I thought that's so interesting because I also don't want to take photos of every single thing I do in my life because I want to enjoy my life and I do want to be in the present moment and being completely in the present moment is not taking 5,000 photos because otherwise I wouldn't be in the present moment. So sometimes I find it hard to keep up, but at the same time, I just do what I feel is right. And I never want people to think that my life is perfect because no one's life is perfect. And I've talked to enough famous people to know that definitely their lives are not perfect and they have the same struggles as everyone else. And I remember someone said to me once, like as someone that listened to the podcast, like, do you get sad? And I remember thinking to myself, geez, like I feel bad thinking that they think that I never get sad. (laughs) And I don't want them to think that my life is perfect because it absolutely is not. And if you hold someone, you know, and we've seen this a lot recently as a guru, then you're only going to ever put yourself underneath them. And I don't think there's anyone in life that you should ever put above you because no one is above you. We're all equal. doesn't matter how much money we have. doesn't matter what our title is. Everyone is the same. And we shouldn't look at people as being lower than us or above us because of financial status or, you know, their work title or anything like that. I love hearing you chat, Sarah. Is I think you listened to the Tyrin Brumford episode. Is that right? Did I hear? Yes. You? Yeah. So, so Tyrin's a mate who who I got her on ages ago before the Australian of the Year thing. She did my swim, the Sydney Skinny, and her film Embrace, whatever. But she's uh, wonderful on. I mean, I'm not a big social media person, but on social media, she will post pictures of her, you know, all glammed up doing whatever it is she's doing, which is fine, and she's a very presentable human being. But she'll also post pictures of herself um, having just done a 10k run, you know, blotchy, you know, with a muffin back, you know, looking. I'm trying to find the right words that aren't insulting, but she's deliberately yeah. doing it, you know, not looking like she's on the red carpet. And you go, great. You go, well, there you go. I mean, obviously, if I put all my slap on and I'm going to the red carpet. I might look appealing and obviously after a 10K run, you know, my hair's a mess and I haven't got any makeup on and blah, blah, blah. And welcome to real life. Exactly. Good on you. Now, we're going from the 30s to the 80s for uh, your second choice on Five My Life, which is always the book. Uh, And you have chosen, um, I've got a copy of it in my hand now, uh, Seat of the Soul by Gary Sukav. Have I pronounced this name? Zukov, sorry, sorry, Gary. Um, tell us your story behind that. Firstly, I want to know: Did you read the whole book? Of, of course, I, I'm. I am. And I was so like, oh my god, no! I just got to read this book. I believe that he will. Ne- I, I haven't listened to all your episodes, but I was like, I think this wouldn't be one of the most more bizarre books that he's ever read. Well, you said it, not me. Okay, we're not non-judgmental on Five of My Life, but I read all bloody uh, 348 pages of it. And uh, so page 95, and I quote <laughs> Gary, uh, there is not one planet in the universe that does not have an active level of consciousness. <laughs> so, I mean, hey, I, I'm, I'm picking up what he's putting down, but I need you to tell me about it. Just so you know, like Gary Zukov is one of the greatest probably spiritual teachers and personal development teachers of our la- of our time, and he's still alive. He's been on the Oprah show more than any other guest that Oprah's ever had, I think like 25 times wow. or something. I'd never heard and, of him. Yeah, and Oprah and uh, Oprah's best friend who passed away, who also was a big spiritual teacher, she was Oprah's basically mentor. 
she said that that book, The Seed of the Soul, changed their life. So Oprah said that book was the book that changed her life forever. And Maya Angelou, who who I've got yeah, a Maya lot of, Angelou. That's who lot of respect of. for. Jeez. I mean, that, so, so those two did a, a forward to the copy that I bought. Yes. And so I'm going into it. A, if you've chosen it, I'm predisposed towards it. And then those two people, they're not just saying this is a good read. They're saying this changed my life. Oprah says, yeah. says, I have lived my life for the last 25 years with intentional purpose because of Gary. And, and you yes. go, wow. So it clearly, I mean, I feel embarrassed not to have heard of him. So tell, tell us your story. So I think one, there are a few things. One thing is that Gary taught me about concepts that I never knew before. And he said them in a way that really changed my life. And one of them is the law of cause and effect that he talks about. And it's Newton's third law of motion. So the idea that we throw a ball at the wall and it will come back. So that's like a scientific, obviously, theory, one that we all know about. So this is the same idea with the words that we say and the way that we show up in the world. So, you know, people might use the Eastern term of karma. But the way that he describes it is basically that, you know, you do something wrong in the world. So say, for example, if you use a Hollywood example, you know, you are married, you're about to marry someone and you you stand them up at the aisle. So they're there and, and you're nowhere to be seen, right? And you kind of you know, betray their trust in a sense. What his theory is, and one that I've seen work in my own life and going on Newton's third law, is that will bounce straight back at you. So the idea that the universe is uh, one that doesn't favour anyone and basically will take what happens and just do the same. It's like a reflection. So you will have that betrayal in your life at some time. And it might not be straight away, but it will be sometime in your lifetime because you did that betrayal. So the whole thing is as well is you never need to take care of someone else's wrongdoing in the knowledge that it will be taken care of, you know, by a higher source. And, you know, that's exactly what karma says, that if you do something bad, something bad will happen to you. But the whole thing is as well with something good. So if you do something good, that will be reflected back at you. And sometimes you can see it almost within days, you know, you pay for someone's coffee or there's, you know, you give someone money that's on the street needing money and then somehow that's rewarded back to you in another way. And I see it in my life all the time. And I just think, had I had known that concept when I was younger, I think that it would have completely made me change who I am and, you know, the way that I kind of held myself in the world. And I, I would hope that everyone who hears this would think about that the next time they were doing something and maybe chose to do something good in the knowledge that that would be reflect. I mean, they should do that anyway, but in the fact that that will be reflected back to them and the same as if they will do something wrong. Wow. So the, the two quotes that really struck me from the book, uh, based off what you've just said, what one is you create your reality with your intentions. Mm. Wow. That's, you know, it's not just a sort of a hokey law of attraction. You go you, just to live a life of intentional purpose that's authentic, where you're, you know, you're aligned properly, personality, soul, all that stuff. But the second one was the center of the evolutionary process is choice. Mm. Sort of going back to your your lesson from the Wizard of Oz, where where actually it's inside you. You can, you know, every every moment you have a choice to behave in a certain way. 
And, yeah. and I mean, you you do. And, and not making a choice. So I, I don't want to sound like Anton Robbins here, but, you know, not making a choice is a choice, if that makes yeah. sense. Greatness requires constant choice. So, you, you know, it's that whole idea of that sliding doors. You may have seen the movie years ago where one choice you make can turn you completely right or left. And when you go right, there's a whole new different door there. And when you go left, there's a whole different door there. But you, you have free will. So it's your choice where you go. And in every moment when you make a decision, you are completely changing the way that, you know, your life may pan out. And I think, again, that's why being conscious of what we do and having intention behind what we do is so powerful because when we're actually thinking about it before we do it, we'll hopefully make the right choices and ones that not only will help ourselves but will help others. So it's interesting that the notion of a small choice having a huge effect over a longer time. So yes. 20 years ago, last Tuesday, I had my last drink. You know, one week after that, you know, I was the same, I was the same bloke. But, but now, 20 years and one week later, I have had a completely different life to the life I would have had if I hadn't made that one small choice then. Yeah. But before we move on from, from Gary, he said something that made me, I mean, he said so many things that, I, that resonated and were thought-provoking and I think helpful. And I'm really grateful to you for you know, putting me on to him and reading that book. But the bits that I read that I thought, hold on, mate, you know, a compassionate heart is more effective against evil than an army. You go, well, not in every case. Um, it, it is, uh, <laughs> I, it, he said something that I thought was quite humble that endeared me to him, not that he cares what I think of him, um, which is, I do not say that it is necessary that you accept this. There are many ways to wisdom and to the heart. And I thought, good on you, Gary. So there's, there's sometimes where you can you can really like someone's message, but not all of it. And the fact yeah. that you might not, you know, I might disagree with him on page 95 and 103 and whatever else. And you go, but that doesn't invalidate the bits that I do agree with. Absolutely. And Gary was saying that as well. So I thought, brilliant. If he said I had to agree with every page, we might part company. But you go, yeah, I, I, I feel a wiser, nicer man having read it. I want to tell you something about Gary. So I always loved his work. And like I said, because he's been on Oprah like 20 something times, he's her number one guest and good friend. I had listened to a lot of those episodes, which are so inspiring. And then I remember the day he said he would come on my podcast. And I was like, oh my God, this is, I don't know, two years ago or something. I thought, I can't believe I'm having Gary Zukov on my podcast. And we had a beautiful conversation together. And, you know, it was a real moment when you look up to someone and you've studied their work for a long time. And then his wife, she would have been like really early 60s or even late 50s, I think maybe early 60s, out of nowhere had a brain aneurysm last year and, and literally just died. Oh. And, you know, this beautiful man who teaches so much about suffering and moving through pain then had to experience, and he was so close with his wife, some of the like the worst pain that he ever has. And it before I came on today to chat to you, I was thinking about the book and Gary and I – it made me reflect on the fact that a lot of our greatest teachers, you know, they constantly are thrown into the fire and I sometimes think it is, you know, to make them wiser and allow their experience to, you know, for them to show more of their experience and their learnings. But I just, you know, my heart goes out to him. He's just such a good person and, you know, no one wants that to happen. So, yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah.
moving on to your third choice on uh, Five My Life. And I love this because all these choices get added to the Five My Life Spotify playlist. And we're going to add on uh, the 10th track from Pearl Jam's second studio album. It's the wonderfully entitled Elderly Woman Behind the Counter in a Small Town. 1993. What's your story behind that, Sarah? Anyone that listens to the podcast knows that I'm obsessed with Pearl Jam, and especially Eddie Vedder also. I was a child of the 90s and I loved rock music. Loved it. So, you know, like eventually many years later when I got the job at Triple M, it was like sitting there just amongst like my family. Anyway, so, and the whole idea of that like Seattle uh, rock kind of grunge era where it had Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Green Day, uh, all of those Foo Fighters, all of those wonderful different bands. But that song in particular, it reminds me of, I'd finished school a couple of years ago and we were at, you know, uni holidays and we were driving one day, me and my friends, we'd gone away for a few weeks and we're driving in Byron Bay, but we're out in the hinterland somewhere and the song came on the radio and we, there was, I think it was all, the, the three boys and me, and we just started singing at full pelt this song at the top of our lungs. And so whenever I think about this song, it reminds me of freedom and how in that moment of singing that song, I couldn't have felt more free in my life. I mean, you know, in those early years, you don't really have any monetary woes because you're still too young kind of to get like a hardcore job. So you have like a little job whilst you're studying at uni, you don't have kids, you know, most of us were either renting or something like that. So we don't have like a hardcore mortgage or anything. And, we, you know, uni holidays last forever. I think there's something in that whole idea of freedom because it's something I talk to a lot of people on a life of greatness about because when we want monetary wealth and things like that, it's not that we want the money. We want to be free. One of the greatest things that humans want in their life, like, is to be free. And so when I think of that song, that's what I think of. And I have to tell you a funny story. My brother, when he was young on the side, he did a bit of DJing and he was DJing one night at this pub in Melbourne and he called me and he goes, oh, Sarah, you won't believe it. Guess who's here? Eddie Vedder and Bono. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, they've just like come off doing this big concert, but they're like sitting in the pub having a meal with a few other people. So I was like, right. So I got into my car with my two CDs, my U2, because I love um, U2 at the time as well, my U2 CD and my Pearl Jam CD, you know, driving 100 miles an hour down to this uh, pub in Melbourne and I park, I remember I like double parked or something like that and I quickly ran out and I, and you know, I saw them, they were at a table at the side and I quickly ran up to them and I was like, hi, and you know when you think when I meet someone that I love, I'll think of something really great to say and I didn't at all. I said, I saw Bono first and I said to him, I'm your biggest fan. I mean, like, could you get any more cliche than that? (laughs) Anyway, and then, you know, I was so starstruck. I think I would have been like 19 or something. And he said to me, you don't look like my biggest fan. You could be one of my littlest fans. And, you know, smart. He literally like stood up, gave me a big hug and whatever, uh, you know, pulled out my CDs and he signed them. 
And then I looked at Eddie Vedder because there was quite a few others, you know, PR people and this and that sitting with them. And Eddie Vedder looks at me. I don't know if he was stoned or something like that. And he kind of couldn't have given, he could not have given a shit, but he (laughs) just signed the CD and I didn't basically talk to him as uh, talk to him at all. But I still have a strong place in my heart for him and his band's music. And um, yes, I was happy that I, I did have that face-to-face meeting with them. <laughs> he's, he's your closest friend. He is a dead set legend. And that, that song is, is sensational. There's so many different levels to it. But just one of the quotes from it that makes me want to ask you a question, Sarah. Small town predicts my fate. Mm. And uh, it just makes me want to ask uh, you about your childhood, uh, wrapped up in a, in, in, a, in a broader comment, which is you're quite hard to find out about beyond your work. You know, I, I read all the books and watch all the films and et cetera, et cetera. And then I go on a little Google, you know, hunt over a few weeks to, to find out about people. And then I type in things like, you know, whoever my next guest is, you know, Fred Blogg's wife, you know, Sue, Sue Smith's husband or whatever. And, and I just sort of unsatisfyingly dead ends to find out about you. And, and I never want to make my guests feel uncomfortable. They only go where they want to go. But I wouldn't mind it if, to the extent that you're comfortable, you tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Was it a small town? How you met your... Uh, you, you're married with two kids. Just a little bit about about you, not not the guru, but you, you the you. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because I, you know, when I got into the public eye a bit, I decided that I wanted to leave a lot of my personal life I learned it from one of my teachers that I really respected where he only showed so much of his, the, the parts of his life that he wanted to in respect to the other people in his family. And so I wanted to do the same because I wanted always to be taken seriously. And that also goes back to our social media chat where I didn't want to post photos of myself that, you know, where people wouldn't take me to be the serious interviewer that I wanted to be. And, you know, when I've interviewed people like John Howard you know, I'm not sitting there, I don't know, just posting things that I, I don't feel comfortable with or, or maybe would make people think about me in a certain way. So that's the way that I approach my personal life. As far as growing up, I grew up in Melbourne. I wasn't in a small town. My dad's a doctor and um, my mum was an accountant and I have a younger brother and, you know, I went to a girls' school and stayed there for my whole schooling and I, you know, I, I, I lived a, a very happy life and there was nothing kind of unusual within it and I'm still very close with both of my parents and my brother now lives in New York and it's a, it's a funny thing because when I reflect back on my childhood, it was that I was a very curious person. I always was interested in things that maybe others were not. And my family weren't hippie or anything. They were the total opposite of that, actually. <laughs> so, you know, my dad's a science, is so science-based. Yeah, I think these were all just things that kind of developed in me over time. But at the same time, my mum is really more open to this stuff and I kind of teach her what I can, especially as the years have passed, whilst my dad is like, not interested whatsoever. I mean, he's he loves everything that I do and this and that, but, you know, we're all different people. So, yeah, that's I, – I was very fortunate. I had a very fortunate upbringing and, and 
I'm so grateful for that. I love hearing you talk about your dad. And I, I love that. Where, where there, There's a very famous, he's passed away now, famous uh, writer called John Mortimer, who used to be a lawyer in England. And, and he was going through his, his parents' diaries after they passed away. And, and, and he was very respected and successful and preeminent. There was, you know, Rampole of the Bailey. He, he was at the top of the game. Films, books, uh, you, you know, uh, Booker Prizes. You know, he could not have been more highly respected and awarded in his field. But his parents, just brilliant. Um, you know, diary, 10th of June, run out of tea bags, need to buy some more at the shop. Um, the lawn needs... You know, the lawn needs clipping. John got a Nobel Prize. Um, Marge and Sue were coming around. You know, it's just whatever. You know, <laughs> your dad, yeah, yeah, Sarah's got Gary Sukov on. You know, well, well that's nice, dear. <laughs> he would not even know who that guy was. Like, it's one of those things like mum listens to every episode of my podcast. And I think dad's listened to maybe one because mum forced him to listen to it. <laughs> Good. Well, listen, when I say good on dad, that doesn't mean, I mean, I think everyone should listen to your podcast because it's fantastic. But I love having people in your life who politely and lovingly just couldn't give a shit. You go, oh, well yes. done. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> podcast of the year. They keep you real, don't they? <laughs> okay, we're moving on to the fourth choice uh, on Five My Life. And you've changed this recently, you tricky yes. trickster. But you're allowed to do that because we love you. Um, you've chosen my meditation chair. Tell us your story. Without sounding too preachy, meditation has been one of the biggest transformers of my life. And I know that sounds like, okay, yeah, I've heard that from every second person. That's interpersonal development work. But honestly, it is and in such a powerful way. So when I got into this kind of stuff, I was doing, I was a breakfast radio producer and I was working crazy hours and experienced burnout. And within that time, I was guided towards meditation and I started doing it and I just, it didn't resonate with me and my thoughts were going a hundred miles an hour and I'm like, I can't even concentrate here. I'm just watching these thoughts go. I don't even, I can't even make sense of them. It's like what the, you know, the, they call the monkey mind. Then I started doing some meditations that I really liked and, and I thought, oh my God, like now I understand what people are talking about. Like meditation is really great. And within that, I started learning the art of manifestation and so what that is, is visualization during the meditative process. And I got right into that. And the whole idea is that you go into like a meditative state. And then at the end, you start doing these mental, mental imagery of what you want to create in your life. And athletes use it and musicians have used it for years where say for an athlete, if they might be a swimmer or a runner or something, they're doing these mental images within their mind of them running the race prior to them doing that. And when they've done scientific research on this, they've found that the athlete that does obviously the training as well as the mental imaging is a lot better at what they do than if they just do the training alone. And, and the brain doesn't know the difference between eyes open and eyes closed. So it's, it's, it's just such interesting stuff. So this whole idea of manifestation is closing your eyes and within that, creating your wishes and desires that you want to achieve in your life whilst you're in that eyes closed state. So when I did that, my whole life changed and I thought, oh my God, like, you know, I started getting the feedback, like this is actually working. I can't begin to tell you the crazy stories and effects that I've had from doing meditation. Like people think, oh, it's just a very calm space, which it is. But there are meditations where, you know, if you combine breath work and mental imagery, 
they're very dynamic and um, you find yourself having these out-of-body experiences at times and different things which are just kind of really blow your mind. And I have I just absolutely love every moment in that meditation chair. Someone said to me once, which sort of opened my mind to the whole area, is saying meditation is like saying sports. There isn't, yes. if you say sports, you know, I play sports, you go, right, what, golf, tennis, rugby, you know, meditation, there are so many, it isn't just um, shanti, yeah. you know, cross legs, I mean, I'm, nothing wrong with that, but it, it's there's, it's just a massive field of different types of meditation, and the one that I, I mean, I'm, I'm not a meditator, but, you know, more power to your elbow, you know the Dan Harris 10% happier? Yes. App? And you go, good on him, he, it, a bit like you, he's putting good out into the world, where, obviously, if you... Uh, you know, get into it. That's fantastic. But for some people, it can be, you know, mildly off-putting. I haven't got time to go to India for eight months or whatever. And you go, no, 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 just mm. give me three minutes. And if, you know, three minutes a day, and if that that floats your boat, maybe five minutes a day. And then it's, I, I love the the notion and the skill of of gateway activities. I think meditation, it's, it's, it's obviously worth looking at. A bit like in, in my life, and it's going to come on to your fifth choice, religion. That doesn't mean religion is a big word. It, it covers lots of different things. It's not. I'm not saying any particular branch, but just you know the numinous. Lots of people have thought about it in the past. It might be worth having a think about. Well, I think like anything, you take the good bits from it, and with meditation, you know, you find a meditation that works for you. And what I think has helped me so much in meditation could help a lot of people listening to these podcasts. Is we all have struggles in life. I mean, you know, as the Buddha says. You know, life is suffering. There are points of life that are suffering and there are waves and sometimes you're feeling going downstream and life is working for you and other times where you're going upstream and you just feel like, oh, my God, nothing is working out and that can be really hard. And I had something happen, you know, recently. I read an email last night and it really annoyed me. <laughs> but, you know, thus is life. And I got into meditation this morning which I did for an hour and um, it was a guided meditation and a really beautiful one and I was really frustrated and that is a perfect time to be in meditation because you're moving through all of these emotions and things come up and they're unsettling and that's okay because if we don't deal with them, they'll come up at a time where we don't want them to be or they'll manifest in anxiety or depression. So in meditation, you feel the emotions and let it pass through you and move on without any judgment. And I interviewed someone the other day and she said something so beautiful about meditation. She, and I, I think I do the same. She says, I stay in meditation until my wound has completely washed through, you know. So the idea that the wound is there, but you're not going to get up till the color of red has washed to clear. But for anyone that just wants more peace in their life, finding a meditation that suits you will allow you to have that time of peace every day. And, um, you know, for me, it, you know, getting a bit more esoterical is that I feel that, you know, when people say that when you pray, you're praying to God, but, you know, when you meditate, it's like God is talking to you. If you believe in that there's a something greater out there, then it's just a really beautiful, quiet, space to be in and I, I highly recommend it to anyone. Your fifth and final choice on Five My Life, and I, I apologize in advance for my atrocious pronunciation, is your red Kabbalah bracelet? Yes. 
Uh, could you describe it for us first? Maybe show it to me if it, if you're wearing it now. And so it's just a it's just literally a piece of red string. You know, I've got one that came from the you know near the Kotel in Jerusalem. The whole idea of the red string they talk about is you know warding off the evil eye. And you know, like I don't know if that's true or whatever, but the reason that I like the red string is it brings me back to the story, which is what you want on the five of your life, which is when I was young, I, you know, told you that when I was growing up, I didn't come from a family that really sort of talked about esoterical things, but I had that yearning inside of me. And then when I was 17, I really wanted to do something about it. And it wasn't mainstream like it is now. And so I heard that there was a Kabbalah teacher in Melbourne who was really well-renowned. And I, I got his details and I called him and I called him and I called him and no answer. And I left messages and messages and messages. And it's funny because it reminds me, I think there was a, like a Sex in the City episode where um, one of the girls, I can't even remember their names because I wasn't, you know, I didn't watch it religiously, that show, but the, the brunette, she wanted to convert to Judaism and they were like, you know, she called the rabbi nonstop and he just wouldn't take her calls because I think her, her soon-to-be husband was Jewish. Anyway, so it reminded me of that where I was calling this like guy nonstop, this Kabbalah teacher who was also a rabbi and he wouldn't answer. And finally, after my 10th call, he called me back and he found it really interesting that I was this 17-year-old girl who had gone to this non-denominational all-girls school. So I wasn't brought up, you know, with this heavy Jewish background and um, I was interested in studying the Kabbalah. So, you know, I got to then he was inter- he was open to teaching me. So I used to go once a week and we'd sit at his house and around his kitchen table and he would like read passages and then we would go through the meanings behind them. And I just, I absolutely loved it. And I think we did that for a year or so. And then uh, after that, he opened up this whole center that's still in Melbourne called Spirit Grow and his name's Label Wolf. And I actually ended up having him on the podcast a couple of years ago. I didn't tell him like my background with him before I came on and um, in the middle of the interview, I'm like, do you remember me? And he's like, oh my God. (laughs) But, you know, when I think about my life now and I reflect back on that Kabbalah bracelet and learning Kabbalah, it really started and opened me up to so much of what I'm doing now. So it's such a, you know, it's really meaningful for me. And it's, it's, it's basically the spiritual parts of the Jewish religion. So, you know, I, I find that to be always really beautiful and interesting. Do you join a separate thing or is just something you believe? Just something that you believe. Right. Okay. So, yeah. so, so, it's, so It's just, it's more knowledge than anything. It's not like a different religion or anything like that. It's like, you know, for Islamic, Islamic religion, there's a lot of Sufi poets and things like that. Like every kind of religion would have their own kind of more esoterical themes behind it. And in the Jewish religion, there is the Kabbalah. Right. It's just been a, a, an absolute delight uh, having you on. <laughs> who would you like to hear on Five My Life next and why? Well, you know who I love? And I was thinking when I was thinking of the song to give you, one that I also really like was one of Bruce Springsteen's. I love Bruce Springsteen as well, going back to rock. And I think he has got such an interesting story. I mean, I'd also love to interview him. Um, and I think that if you had him on the five of my life, he would be absolutely entertaining. And, you know, he's been through a lot and he's a good person. And I think that your audience would really appreciate his wisdom. So I think he would be a great person.
Well, listen, I'll, I'll give him a ring, and if he agrees, I'll say only on the condition that you also go on a life of greatness with Sarah. Is that Done. a deal? And vice versa, please. 100%. <laughs> and the, the two quotes um, uh, I just wanted to end with. Um, one, do you know Stephanie Darrick? Wonderful uh, lady, author. Um, she got me onto a Tennessee Williams quote, um, which is, we live in a perpetually burning building, and what we must save from it all the time is love. And I, and I just like the, the notion of, you know, we're all trying our best. You know, life is bloody chaos the whole time and everyone's, you know, working it out as we go. But, you know, the one, one, one thing we can all hopefully agree on is uh, let's be a little bit kinder, love. Uh, and the second quote is from you when you said you just want to be your authentic self, ensuring that every connection you make is meaningful and to be mindful in the company of other people. And you are uh, a legend, and I love the work you do. And thank you for coming on The Five of My Life and taking the challenge. Oh, Nigel Marsh, you're such a beautiful soul. Thank you. It's been so enjoyable to be on a podcast where I get asked different questions that aren't just all about kind of the usual things I talk about. So I've had a lovely discussion with you. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, Forty and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.